This morning, as we turn to the Word of God, there's two discipleship principles that I want to make sure we lift up. These are the ones that the Lord laid on my heart as I read the Scripture that He had put before us this week. And if you'll remember, we're on a discipleship journey that we've been on since last fall that talks about how the disciples from when they were called to when they died, specifically when they were called to when Christ died, but we watch their lives even after he died through many of uh, the Gospels. But what did discipleship look like for them? And so we've got calling, but today we've got something a little bit different in, in the, the devotions. And so um, we have been putting before you weekly devotions that if you want to read from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would get this discipleship journey. Because in those four Gospels, we get what it looks like to be a disciple from the time you are called to literally the time that Jesus died. And then what do you do after that? Well, today we are in John, the 13th chapter. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth gospel. That means this gospel is from somebody that actually walked and talked and lived with Jesus, unlike the gospel of Luke. John is the oldest of the disciples when, uh, when he dies. He's going to die after the Romans have already tried to kill him. They boiled him. Literally, they boiled him alive and they couldn't kill him uh, by boiling him. When they couldn't kill him by boiling him, they resigned him to a prison on an island called Patmos. It's where we get our book of Revelation from as Christ spoke to John's heart on that island. And John wrote this amazing book that connects us to Daniel and Ezekiel and, and books from the Old Testament as Christ continues to pour out his story to us, even to the end of Scripture. But the Gospel of John was written, he wasn't on the island of Patmos yet, he hadn't been boiled alive yet, but he was trying to say something about his Lord and Savior, the Apostle John, in his 13th chapter, begins it by saying this, Jesus knew, verse 1, of the 13th chapter of John. Jesus knew that his hour had come. His hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. I love this next line. Having loved his own, his disciples, 250, 300 people, but specifically 12, loved his own, his family, you think? His mother, Joseph, his father, his brothers, his sisters. Having loved his own, he loved them now to the end. So John says, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he had to depart from this world, having already loved his own who were in the world, he now loved them to the end. When I read that this week, it was like, what do you do with that? Well, I'm going to tell you in just a minute what Christ did with my heart. Supper being ended, the devil having already put it into Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, all right, Judas Iscariot, we know. The devil having already put it in his heart to betray Jesus, 
Jesus knowing all of this, and the Father having given all these things into Jesus' hand, Jesus knowing where he had come from and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose, John says. This is commentary from John. He rose from the supper table because supper was done. Yeah. He laid aside his garments. That would have been his outer cloak. He laid aside his garments. He took a towel and he girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come to die, had loved his disciples who had been in the world, who had been given to him, had loved his family, had loved the people that were his own while he was in this world. He's now going to, it says, love them to the end. He gets up from supper, a supper where he has eaten it with somebody, Judas Iscariot, that's going to betray him. He takes off his cloak, his outer cloak, his outer garment. He wraps a towel around himself, takes water, pours it into a basin. And he comes to Simon Peter, verse 6. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? It's, it, it, this is Peter. What a question. Are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you don't understand. What I am doing you don't understand now. But you will know after this. And Peter said to him, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. I'm going to unpack that for you in just a minute. Jesus' response to Peter. This is in red in our Bibles, folks. Jesus' words back to Peter. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. That was enough for Peter. So Peter said to him, Then, Lord, not only my feet, but wash my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed, that's bathing, Peter. You wash your face, you wash your hands. You By the way, wash your hands, all right? Jesus said, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. Because you're completely clean. You're completely clean. Those who have taken a bath are clean. But this isn't about that. This is about washing feet. Okay? Jesus knew who betrayed him, and he said, Not all of you are clean in here. So when he washed their feet, he took his garments, he sat down again, and he said, now do you know what I have done? Listen to this. Do you know what I have done to you? Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher. That's rabbi. We've, we've talked about that. You call me teacher. And you call me Lord, Messiah, Master, Right? You call me rabbi, you call me Lord. And you say it well, for I am both of those things to you. 
And so if I then, your Lord, Master, Messiah, Rabbi, if I then, your Lord, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you have done as I have done to you. Because I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master. Mm. A servant is not greater than his master. That's the way of the world. Two discipleship principles. <clears throat> I want us to hear about worship. Worship defined like this as, as our discipleship principles dictate to us. Worship designed as letting Christ know, if we worship Him, that He is worthy of that worship. But worship also in the sense that we understand what our worth is. Remember, I've talked about worship before, and I've talked about the fact that we go to great lengths in this world to share with each other what each other are worth. We go to great lengths in this world to try and convince ourselves of even what we're worth. Oh, my, the lengths at which we go to just make that idea of worship a reality. We love you, God, and so we come and we worship you. And my goodness, we find ways to do it even when the world prevents us from doing it. Because we are going to show you, God, that you are worthy. But, Lord, there's that worship that you say to us is about living that out in our lives. And so we who are United Methodists, we who are United Methodists, have a different idea of, of uh, discipleship than a lot of denominations do. We have lots of fancy words for it. We call it sanctification. We, we call it going on to perfection. We call it all kinds of things. But what it really boils down to is we believe in the United Methodist Church. The way we live our lives is a sign of what we think you, God, are worth. And so we seek to be worthy in our lives not just because, not just because it benefits us, but we have heard the words from Scripture where God has said to us in the United Methodist Church, Be ye holy as I am holy. And so one of the ways that we specifically in the United Methodist Church live out our discipleship is by somehow attempting to be worthy and of worth, not to everybody else in the world, but as an example of the love that you showed to us. Be ye holy as I am holy, you said to us. And so we work to sanctify ourselves, to be worthy of that calling that you have placed upon our lives. Jesus ends this, this whole example that he has given by saying, you do understand that the servant is not greater than the master. And yet in this example, the master has now washed the feet of the servant. One of the discipleship principles that we really need to lock in on, I believe today, from this portion of Scripture, is this sense of worth. This sense of what it means to God, what it means in Christ, what it means to each other, what it means to ourselves, but what we do with it. 
So I'll unpack a little bit more of that in just a second. The other discipleship principle that we have to deal with today, remember there are six of these that that I preach on regularly. The other discipleship principle is servant. How do we serve each other? Remember here in Santa Claus, we have three things that we say we focus on primarily. Invite, grow, and serve. And by the way, if you haven't gone over here and and, uh, zoomed in or anything on our new uh, symbol, our, our new brand, our new logo here. I love it because we have had Rooted that's been up here for a while. We now, with our launch today, we're ready to launch Grounded and Rooted, two worship experiences, one church. We have banners that hang up here every once in a while that say, invite, grow, and serve. Service, servanthood is one of the things that we focus on here. In Santa Claus. And so that second discipleship principle that I want to make sure we get out of the scriptures from today is all about servanthood. It's all about serving. Serving. So as I unpack these things, let me let me try to do it this way. I don't it's it's not long, it's not drawn out, but there are a few thoughts I, I want to unpack with this. And it begins with the words of Christ. Or the words of John leading us to the words of Christ. Because John opened this, and I said I was going to come back to it. He loved them while he was in the world. And then John says, and now he's going to love them to the end. Isn't it fascinating that John makes a distinction? Isn't it fascinating that John makes a distinction between the love that we give to each other as we're growing and the love that becomes very focused at the end? Have you ever noticed that about relationships? I've got some people over here, the praise team. They were like, we can't be... Up there because people are going to think, well, they're maybe sitting together and they shouldn't be. But I got some people over here and I'm going to look at them a little bit because though I want you to hear this message, I want you guys to hear what I'm trying to say to you. Isn't it fascinating that the love that we have for each other as we're living our lives becomes really, really focused at the end? Have you ever, have you ever lost somebody that's very meaningful to you? And the love that you have for those people when you have it day after day after day. You know what I'm talking about. You just kind of expect to get up the next day to that love. And that love grows and that love grows and it grows. But you get to the point, and as a pastor I have seen this time and time and time again. And I understood exactly what John was talking about here. When he talked about Jesus had this love for his disciples, for those that he had been given in this world. Remember, 250, 300 people. These these were his people. Twelve of them were very close to him, and his family was extremely close to him. When we get to the end, that love almost becomes laser-focused. All right, what do I need to say? This one last time. What has been left unsaid? What do I want to make sure if you don't remember anything else about me? What do I want to make sure you remember? 
That's the love that happens at the end. And so Christ had been teaching them about love and about relationships for three years now. They had, he had been their rabbi. They had been following him, as we talked about in one of the messages. They had been eating the dust of the rabbi. They, they had been trying to stay so close to him, he would every once in a while sneak off up into the mountains to get a little bit of time for himself. But generally speaking, Jesus wasn't alone, and these, these disciples were with him all the time. And he had been teaching them about love by his acts of healing, by his miracles, by the way he treated that woman at the well that, that Clayton just sang about a little bit ago and the, the uh, praise team uh, did such a beautiful job of presenting. He, he had been looking at the world and he had been reframing it for his disciples saying to them do you understand that this is what God was hoping the world was going to be about so he had been loving them for three solid years and now you get to the end they're at their last supper together and John makes the statement he had been loving them that God had given him in this world and now he's going to love them to the end. I think John knew very well what that felt like. A man that had <laughs> almost been martyred by boiling him. A man that, that was going to be exiled to the island of Patmos. How many times had the disciples believed their life must have been over? And you have time to think about, boy, I wish I had said this. Boy, I wish I had done this. And so I think at this point in John's life when he's writing his gospel, he's thinking about Jesus had one last opportunity to talk about things like worth. He had loved his disciples and he had taught them about worth. James and John one day had been walking with Jesus. They're walking along the road. Uh, their mother comes up to Jesus and Jesus knows they've been talking back there. And she's bold enough to say, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, can one of my sons sit at your right and the other at your left hand? James and John, the sons of thunder. And Jesus looks at, at, uh, at their mother and he looks at James and John and he says, do you understand this isn't what it's all about? Who gets to sit in the places of honor. That's not mine to give. Number one. But number two. Guys. This isn't what life is about. This isn't what the world is about. And so he's in love. He's teaching them about worth. Why? Because it's something we all struggle for. If you were enrooted last week. One of the things that was so fascinating to me, we had a panel discussion up here, four generations, the baby boomer generation, the Gen X generation, the millennial generation, and the Gen Z generation. And one of the interesting things, it's out there on YouTube now, you can go back and get it, Santa Claus uh, YouTube, if you just, if you just uh, search Santa Claus United Methodist Church, we've got a YouTube channel. You can go watch Rooted last week. And this conversation was so fascinating because by the time we got down to Gen Z and we got down to, uh, to Kinley last week, I mean, it was getting real. Because she was talking about in the Gen Z generation, we were talking about what causes anxiety and stress. 
And, and each successive generation was talking about what causes stress and anxiety. And of course, what we were trying to do was say, how do we deal with that? But how fascinating is it when we get to Gen Z down here and Kinley is speaking for her generation and talking about what is it that we struggle with so much? And she's talking about social media and the comparisons we make to each other. Why does that create anxiety? Because folks, let's, let's figure out what hasn't changed, whether you're a baby boomer or whether you're a Gen Zer. We all live our lives trying to figure out what are we worth? Who am I in relation to the person next to me? Who am I in relation to God? And Jesus has been teaching his disciples all this time as he takes a woman that everybody thinks it has no value and worth in this world. And he lifts her out of that station. And he says, that's not the way that we, as people of God, ascribe worth. And so we wrestle with, well, what's, what's my worth? And Jesus says, we have a lot that we can say about this. And we don't have to utter a word. And he gets up from the table and he takes off his cloak. And as he's loved them in life, he's going to love them in the end. And he's going to focus that love in now and tell them the thing that he wants them to remember. Taking off that cloak, taking off that outer garment, he takes the towel. He wraps it around his waist. He kneels down in front of Peter. And Peter's first question to him is, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus' response is, you don't get what I'm trying to do, but you will understand. And Peter's immediate response is to draw back from Christ and say, you will never, ever wash my feet. Why? Because worth is ascribed to that. Servants aren't greater than masters. And Peter understood himself to be the servant of the master, the student of the rabbi. My master will never wash my feet. It's my job to wash your feet. And so we have a structure in our world that has been set up not by God, but by the father of lies. A structure of worth that has said to us that masters never wash servants' feet. 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 And that servants always wash the feet of masters. Jesus is saying that's not the way it works in God's economy. Let me give you, he says, my last lesson to you. That if you don't remember anything else in this world, I want you to remember this. I know that in this world, a servant is not greater than his master. I know that. But let me tell you in God's world what masters do. Here's the thing. We've moved from worship, worthiness, to servanthood. What does it mean as a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ to be a servant? Not just of God, but of each other. Well... According to John, it has something to do with taking off that cloak, cloak, wrapping a towel around your waist, and kneeling with a basin of water, regardless of your status, estate, or worth, and washing somebody else's feet. 
It must have something to do with that because that's what John is pointing out. Jesus was trying to teach with the last love that he had to give in this world. So let me give you the context. In God's economy in the Old Testament, it's the only place we have to draw from is the Old Testament. In God's economy, when he set down the laws in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, they understood by the word of God himself what it meant for somebody to be a servant. And it was nothing like what the Romans had made out of servanthood. In God's economy in the Old Testament, servants were essentially family and extended family. Sure, they did things for you. Sure, they had their place in the family. And sure, we had patriarchal systems that we rail against to this day. I get it. But servanthood wasn't defined the way the Romans defined it. Servanthood in the Old Testament, a servant could actually inherit the master's entire estate. You could leave to your servants Everything that you had. Why? Because servanthood was essentially in the Levitical and Deuteronomy economy. Just an extension of family. Servants could become sons. Servants could become daughters. Children of servants could be brought into the family line. It's why we have angst and animosity today between those who are descended from Ishmael and those who are descended from Isaac because both groups of people understand that to be a son of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac, to be a son of Abraham entitled you to inheritance and rights of the father. Servanthood in the Old Testament in God's economy, the way the laws of Leviticus are set up, was not what it was in the Roman economy. And so these two ideas of servanthood are clashing with each other on this night after this supper as Jesus kneels down and begins to wash the feet of his disciples, his servants. Because in the Roman idea of servanthood, here's what happened, if you're ready for this. The Romans would take and drive a nail through your ear. Did you catch that, I hope? The Romans would take and drive a nail. Sometimes it was bone. And it would have a symbol on it that say, this is who you belong to. And you are property. Does that sound familiar? Sound kind of like the American idea some 2,000 years later of slavery. The Western idea, it wasn't an American idea, it was a Western idea. We borrowed from the Romans. We didn't borrow from Leviticus. We made property out of people. And it wasn't unheard of in Western slavery for brands to be put on people. Why? Because you showed they were your property. Well, in the Roman economy, servants were marked by a nail or a piece of bone through the ear, permanently attached. Jesus turns that 
upside down because you can make that connection, right? The very last act that Jesus is going to do in an economy in which he is the Messiah, he is God, he is the master, he is the rabbi, is to this world take nails through his hands and nails through his feet. Become the servant for all mankind who would give their lives to him. Jesus says as his last words before they're going to go up onto the Mount of Olives and before he's going to pray and before they're going to arrest him and before they're going to crucify him. The servant is not greater than his master. And yet with my last love that I have to give, let me be very clear about what it means to be one of my followers. And he takes off his cloak and he wraps a towel and he washes feet. And he teaches the lesson of servanthood and discipleship that greater love hath no man but that he lays down his life for his brother. That's not meaning we die for each other. That means when it comes to worth We are always about. Others' value is always given more than ours. There is nothing more valuable than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he came into this world. Nothing could have been better for this world in the short term than for us just to have followed all the ways that Christ taught. But it wouldn't solve the problem of eternity. Because the problem of eternity was a fallen nature. The problem of eternity was mankind that was separated from God. The problem of eternity is that each generation is going to decide for itself. And once Christ had left this world, the the generations would, as they always had, turn back to a fallen nature. And so Jesus Christ, as his final act as master, was to give himself his servant. Worship and servanthood to discipleship principles that lift others' lives above our own as Christ lifted ours above his. I'd like to leave you with a blessing this morning. I pray that the Lord would bless you and keep you. I pray that the Lord would make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. I pray that God will lift up his countenance upon you and I pray that God will give you peace. God is good all the time and all the time God is good.